This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis. This is episode 37, uh, and this week we are looking at philanthropy and the welfare state. Um, So basically what I want to do is kind of address that long-standing question of where the balance of responsibility lies within society when it comes to providing for the welfare needs of citizens between the state on the one hand and voluntary action, philanthropy or charity uh, on the other hand. And this is a question I'm absolutely fascinated by and I think it's one that has played a huge part in shaping uh, philanthropy over hundreds of years and continues to be a big um, kind of centrepiece of debate in this area even today as we'll see. So what I want to do in the first section is kind of bring us up to the point, certainly here in the UK, where we saw the establishment of the full-blown welfare state, to get some idea of the role that philanthropy and voluntary action played uh, prior to that in kind of shaping the nature of uh, responses to welfare and the role of the state. So I think, you know, the the starting point or a useful starting point um, is the turn of the 17th century. Um, before that, basically, the the government had accepted no responsibility for the, the welfare needs of its citizens. I think the, the role of government in relation to citizens was largely seen as one of uh, a minimum level of protection um, through, you know, the, the maintenance of, a, of an army through conscription and those those other sorts of means. But there wasn't a sense that actually the government needed to care for the individual welfare needs of of people within society that was very much the job of the church or of individual acts of charity and that changed um, at the start of the 17th century when we saw the introduction of the poor law legislation so this was really kind of the first systematic piece of legislation that conferred on the government a responsibility in some way to kind of deal with the issue of poverty within society and it is intrinsically linked with philanthropy and charity in quite an interesting way, which is that at pretty much the same time the government introduced the first poor law legislation, it also introduced the uh, statute of charitable uses in 1601. Now, I think we've mentioned this quite a few times on the podcast before, but it is pretty much the sort of seminal moment in the history of, uh, of philanthropy, so that's probably fair enough. But this is the piece of legislation that was essentially kind of intended to uh, stipulate what were the appropriate areas of operation or areas of focus for charitable trusts in the UK at that time and particularly the preamble to this so the sort of explanatory note up front um, contains a, a list essentially of the things that counted as sort of acceptable charitable purposes which wasn't a strict legal definition of charity but was the first time the government had really kind of set out its stall on this front and formed the basis for 
the development of charity law from that point on. But the point here is that the reason the government was doing this and introducing this piece of legislation was not simply that it was deeply concerned with issues to do with charitable giving or the operation of charitable trusts. It was because even though the poor laws had been introduced and they potentially conferred um, a responsibility on the state to deal with the welfare needs of citizens, the get-out clause for the government was that it wouldn't have to enact those poor laws if the welfare needs of citizens continued to be effectively met through charitable means. So they had a very strong interest in ensuring that charities were operating efficiently and that as much as possible of their efforts were focused on the sorts of welfare issues that otherwise the government would have to come in um, and take over responsibility for. So they, they were very keen that um, to shape the way that charity operated. So that was the situation at the outset. I mean, actually what happened in reality was that over time the, the government did have to enact uh, the poor laws um, and over time that kind of the the degree of, of poor law implementation increased so that the state did take on more and more responsibility for welfare. Now, we shouldn't start thinking that this is the sort of welfare that we mean today. Um, the poor laws were not like the modern welfare state. They were extremely punitive and people really wouldn't have sought help from the government or the state through the poor laws unless they absolutely had to and, and were pretty much entirely destitute because the uh, the sort of welfare through the system of poor houses and workhouses and other things that was provided was definitely not really um, you know, preferable to, to working. Um, but then over time, I think as the state did take on more responsibility, what you also see is the beginning of a backlash. Um, so the, the, the balance of responsibility between philanthropy and state shifts slowly towards state. But then in the... Um, I guess the the 18th century, probably mid to late 18th century, there's a kind of clear sense um, in which people start to see that as undesirable and start to push back against the idea that the state uh, should take on responsibility for welfare. And then we see quite a strong shift back in the other direction towards the idea that philanthropic provision um, is is far preferable. And this is really what lays the groundwork for the sort of grand experiment of the Victorian era, where essentially philanthropists and philanthropy as a whole tried to take over responsibility for creating um, a kind of universal system of welfare um, and this was the, the part of the reason for this was tied into views on the nature of poverty which is something I think we've again discussed on the podcast before but a lot of Victorian philanthropy um, was still, uh, whilst concerned with issues of poverty, it saw it essentially as an individual problem and one with a moral element, rather than being a uh, sort of systemic problem or one to do with uh, inequality or, or the failure of structures in society. So if people were poor, that was seen as something that kind of was kind of to some extent their own fault. Um, and then subsequently the the appropriate way to deal with that was on an individual one-to-one -one basis through philanthropy and voluntary action so there wasn't really seen as something that was kind of uh, part of the relevant sphere of interest of the state now to cut an extremely long and complicated story short by the end of the the 19th century sort of late victorian era what became clear in all sorts of different areas of welfare need and service provision was that whilst philanthropy had achieved some notable successes, 
at an aggregate level, it wasn't really up to the scale of the challenge of kind of meeting the welfare needs of society, partly because those welfare needs had changed with the onset of urbanisation and the nature and scale of poverty had had kind of got beyond the point where philanthropy could feasibly deal with it. So a growing school of thought came to believe that actually the state needed to take over a responsibility, a measure of responsibility for welfare provision. Now, an important um, point in this is the, the Poor Law Commission, which was around the turn of the 20th century, um, which was a sort of government look at the operation of the poor laws and whether there were sort of changes needed to them. And this was... A, a very divisive uh, commission in that it sort of split in half. So there was the official report, which essentially kind of made some suggestions for changes, but didn't see any fundamental need to to kind of rework the system radically. But then there was a minority report of the uh, the Poor Law Commission, um, led by a, a group of figures who subsequently became uh, kind of a big part of shaping the welfare state, particularly um, uh, Beatrice and Sidney Webb, who were sort of social reformers who um, also went on to found the Fabian Society. And I think Sidney Webb founded the New Statesman magazine here in the UK. So sort of big uh, early labour thinkers. Um, and and that minority report of the Poor Law Commission uh, essentially kind of argued for the need for uh, the introduction of universal welfare and, and the kind of lots of the elements of the welfare state. Uh, and interestingly, William Beveridge, who was one of the sort of eventual architects of the poor law, who we'll come back to in a minute, um, was the, the secretary for that minority um, report. So obviously, the people who were kind of involved in that were hugely influential in shaping a lot of uh, kind of 20th century history in, in the UK. And then this kind of had an impact and also reflected a, a, a wider change in the political mood at the start of the 20th century, where the the liberal governments um, of the early 20th century in the UK were much more interested in ideas of collectivism and reshaping the relationship between citizen and state, and also in the, the notion of kind of that there was some degree of entitlement on the part of the individual um, in terms of being able to expect the state to to help them with their various welfare needs, and this saw the the introduction of uh, some of the early elements of the welfare state, things like the state pension, which was one of the kind of big big initial changes. Um, and then again, if we sort of fast forward through the the interwar period, then shortly after the end of the the Second World War, obviously that's when we really see. The, the full-blown introduction of the welfare state, in the, particularly in the shape of the NHS in 1948. Um, I mean, there's lots lots of ink has been, uh, has been spilt, sort of uh, wondering what it was that eventually kind of laid the, the foundations for that, and, and to some extent maybe the experience of the Second World War and the kind of forced collectivism uh, in that situation was the thing that finally made it palatable for people to accept this sort of massive system um, of social welfare, but but whatever ha- whatever the case and whatever the reason, th- that is what happened. Now the question for philanthropy uh, and sort of charity at this point was was almost an existential one. You know, did the development of the welfare state in this form spell the end of the need for philanthropy and charity, or the end of there being any space for it? Now, there were certainly many who thought that. So um, there was quite a big split in thinking, um, I think, at this point, um, even within those who were in favour of the welfare state. 
So you look at the words of um, sort of major Labour figures at the time, Labour politicians, people like Clement Attlee or Nye Bevan, and they seem to be very much of the mind that it would be desirable if one of the end results of the introduction of the welfare state and the NHS was that it did result in the death of philanthropy. Um, Nye Bevan particularly... um, sort of loathed philanthropy he de- decried it as a as a patchwork of local paternalisms and thought that it would be you know a sort of artifact of the victorian era that could be uh, that would be happily done away with interestingly william beveridge who came more from the the liberal tradition and had been one of the chief architects of the welfare state had a very different view um, and again, we've mentioned, I think, on the podcast before that he wrote a book in, in 1948 called Voluntary Action, which is his um, attempt to develop a kind of argument for why philanthropy and individual voluntary action would remain relevant and crucial within the context of a welfare state. And his arguments there are very much about the way in which it would supplement state welfare provision, how it would fill in the gaps, how it would provide a driving force for innovation, how there would be things that philanthropy would always fund and support that would never be part of the ambit of the state. Um, And, you know, actually, we'll see later on that a lot of what Beveridge says, I think, kind of came to resonate much more with the eventual understanding of the role um, of philanthropy in relation to the welfare state. But that kind of brings us up to the point where the welfare state was introduced and frames an important debate, I think, that we'll come on to in the next section about whether governmental responsibility for welfare and government spending on welfare crowds out the space for philanthropy. So is there some sort of tension or zero-sum game between the two? And in this next section, I want to look at what um, some of the evidence from economics and other sciences can tell us about that question. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so in this second section, as I said just before the break, what I want to do is look at the question of whether state funding for welfare crowds out philanthropy or in fact conversely actually crowds it in um, which is an interesting question that we will come on to in a moment so as we said before the break that the argument about crowding out is essentially if you have state provision of welfare and sort of governmental spending on welfare does that mean that you no longer need or have any space for philanthropic funding uh, for similar things now a lot of people assume that that is uh, kind of commonsensically the case Um, And that hence there's a direct correlation between the size of the state and the health, the culture of philanthropy in a country. So, you know, a lot of people, for instance, would argue that one of the reasons that the US has a higher higher degree of, of philanthropic giving than the UK is because we have a welfare state in the UK and the US doesn't. And that that's one of the key factors that accounts for it. Actually, when you look at figures on the amount of of social spending, particularly taking into account indirect social spending through insurance, um, it's not actually clear that the US has very much lower levels of of social spending. There there are differences in the way the social safety net works, but it's it's a lot less clear cut than you might think. Also, when you uh, dig into the data on differing levels of philanthropic giving across countries and try and correlate that against factors related to the size of the state actually 
what you find is there isn't really any clear correlation at all. So we did this at CAF a couple of years ago um, for a report um, that we put out called Gross Domestic Philanthropy, which I'll put links uh, in the show notes to. Uh, I can't take a lot of credit for this one because I wasn't involved in writing it. My uh, erstwhile podcast co-host Adam um, basically did this one. But um, it's a really interesting report. And what it does is it looks at data for 24 countries that we could identify where there were kind of um, decent figures on the, the estimated level of annual giving from kind of national surveys. And then we correlated that um, against a range of different factors, including things like GDP, uh, income tax rate, corporate tax rate, level of social welfare spending, and so on. And when you look at it across those 24 different countries, there's no significant correlation overall between most of those measures and levels of giving. Um, and and mean that in a sort of statistically significant sense. The only exception, interestingly, was levels of employer social welfare contributions. So if uh, in, across these countries, if uh, employers contribute significantly to uh, the welfare of, of citizens, actually that is correlated with a reduction in level of uh, levels of charitable giving. But I think you know you have to be quite careful not to read too much into that because it might well just be an artifact of the data or some sort of anomaly. So much more would need to be done to dig into that. But I guess what it broadly suggests, if you if it doesn't seem as though there's a clear correlation there, is just actually, as you might expect, it's much more complex and there are a very broad range of factors in play. So, you know, the broader economic conditions in a country, apart from levels of government expenditure, levels of government tax take, the specific tax treatment of donations, obviously, because that, that has a pretty determinate impact on uh, the message the government gives out about philanthropy uh, and the way in which you know people are incentivized to give, and then sort of softer factors like the the history of philanthropy and and the kind of social welfare in that country, what the overall religious practices are. I mean, we in two episodes ago on this podcast we talked about the impact of religion on philanthropy, and it's very clear that. Uh, religious obligation and religious belief plays a big role in driving philanthropy in many countries. And also there's things like, you know, there's lots of hidden giving in some places. So sort of unofficial giving or informal types of giving that perhaps don't get captured um, in in countrywide surveys or efforts to kind of categorise philanthropy, but actually are playing a large part in supporting the sort of infrastructure of social welfare within a country. So I think, you know, that's just to say it's a very complex question, but I think it, it's pretty clear that there's no very direct correlation between levels of philanthropic giving on the one hand and the size of the state um, on the other. And linked to this, I think there's a really interesting uh, piece of research from the economic literature, uh, particularly some work done by Andreonian Payne. So James Andreoni is a, an economist who's done a lot of work on uh, the kind of the economics, microeconomics of charitable giving. And one of the, the experiments that he did, or a few experiments, are looking at this question of crowding out. Because the, the question that, that he wanted to address was, it seems as though on the face of it, economically, there is a crowding out phenomenon. So when you identify uh, causes or specific organizations that are in receipt of government money for some welfare need, actually the level of philanthropic giving to them does decline. 
but what what he wanted to do which i think is really interesting is is try and disaggregate some of the possible reasons that this might happen so the assumption we make is that just somehow the the introduction of government money fills up the available space and that there's no space left for philanthropy so the philanthropists go elsewhere but actually as andreoni and payne point out what might be happening is simply that government funding to a particular organization means that they put less effort into trying to fundraise elsewhere because they no longer need to and actually it's that which explains the reduction uh, in donations um and interestingly they did a subsequent experiment where they controlled for that so what you do is you get an organization that is in receipt of government funding for some service but then control by ensuring that they maintain fundraising spend at the levels that they would have done otherwise and interestingly what they found was not only that actually there wasn't a crowding out effect for philanthropy if anything there was a crowding in effect because once an organization was fundraising you know as hard as it would have done without government money um the fact that there was also the government money played an important role as what they call a leadership gift so people looked at that and saw that this organization had already got a big chunk of money in so the sense psychologically is oh right my money could go even further so it's, it's the same kind of psychology that underpins a lot of matching programs um so there's an interesting question there in terms of crowding out about whether actually if organizations that were in receipt of government money were able to structure their fundraising ask appropriately whether they could get even more donations on top of that that government money um you know quite how you do that in practice uh, that's uh, that's a whole other question for people who go out and, and offer you know expensive fundraising consultancy services but what the the economic literature does is again i think show that the question is much more nuanced than you might think okay then in in this the last section uh what i want to do is to to go on from where we've already got to and kind of explore what the role of philanthropy in a modern welfare state uh, might be and some of the kind of challenges that that we face uh, at the moment and going on into the future. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so we are back. So in this last section, uh, as I said uh, just before the break, what I want to do is look at the question of you know, uh, what the role of philanthropy is in a welfare state. So in the first section, we got up to the point where the welfare state had been established and saw that there was um, a debate about whether this spelt the end of philanthropy. Um, and then in the second section, we looked at some of the evidence around whether there is a crowding in effect, a crowding out effect, or indeed a crowding in effect um, between philanthropy and the state. And what I want to do now is look at where the situation has come to today um, and sort of where things might be going in the future. So post-establishment uh, of the, the welfare state in the, the late 40s here in the UK, as I said, there was a big question about whether it would spell the end of um, uh, kind of philanthropic provision of welfare or the, the need for philanthropy. And actually, in the short term, there was some evidence of this being the case. So um, I think historically, the 1950s were a real kind of doldrum period for philanthropy and the voluntary sector in, in the UK, as as a lot of organisations found that there wasn't really a need or kind of space for what they had traditionally done in terms of service provision. Now, what happened in the 1960s was interesting, I think, at, uh, I think, partly driven by the fact that at that point it became clear within the welfare state that 
the you know the state had as many failings in in its own way as philanthropy had had when it came to to providing welfare services and so there were gaps in that provision that needed filling and equally there was going to be a need to challenge state provision in order to keep it on the right path and to drive innovation so what a lot of organizations uh, either traditional organizations which changed tack or entirely new organizations that were formed started to do was to focus much more on campaigning directed at the state in order to kind of drive changes in the way that that the welfare state operated and the state tried to meet the needs of citizens. So, you know, famous examples certainly around this are things like um, the the establishment of Shelter, the homeless charity, which which came about primarily off the back of um, a famous uh, piece of television here in the UK called um, Kathy Come Home, which was a drama about a homeless woman. And this really brought the issue of homelessness in the country right into people's living rooms. And there was a kind of huge cultural and, and public response to this. Um, and so it became a big issue for campaigning and, and Shelter was born. Um, and similarly, lots of other organisations um, started to, to kind of campaign around different welfare uh, needs at the same time. Um there's also interesting there's a whole pocket of organizations that do things that you might uh kind of assume were the responsibility of the state but for one reason or another have never been taken over as a state responsibility so i'm thinking here of things like lifeboats which here in the uk uh, the government's never run lifeboats it's always been the responsibility of the royal national lifeboat institution the rnli um, similarly, there's things like hospices, so end-of-life care, which a lot of people, I think, would have assumed was a state-provided thing and part of the NHS, is part of the hospice movement, which is philanthropically funded. And also, you know, today, uh, that continues in both those areas, and also things like air ambulances, which, again, you know, seem like something which is part of the infrastructure of, of the health service, but actually is uh, is run on philanthropic lines and kind of supported through philanthropic donations. Um, so there've always been that pocket of anomalies as well, and then as as we kind of those anomalies kept going and organisations geared up to try and challenge state provision, there also uh, a bit later on the late seventies and certainly early eighties started to be a very relevant political shift that that sort of affected thinking um, about state provision of welfare. So the rise of the new right and sort of new streams of conservative thinking um, in the US at first and then in the UK. So with figures like Reagan taking over as, as president in the US and Thatcher uh, taking over as prime minister in the UK, there was much more of a sense of a desire to roll back uh, the state and kind of reduce the level of responsibility that the state was taking for uh, for welfare needs of citizens and kind of interfering as they saw it with um, with their lives. Um, and in practical terms, what this meant was in the, the mid to late 80s, the uh, the first sort of signs of the privatisation or outsourcing of public services. Um, now, initially, that was done through a thing called compulsive competitive, uh, compulsory, compulsive, <laughs> compulsory competitive tendering, which was where um, services had to be put out um, for sort of competitive tendering. And that was done pretty much entirely on the basis of getting the lowest cost um unsurprisingly i think it became clear relatively quickly that if you're trying to deliver public services and particularly welfare services and your only criterion is getting them cheaply you weren't necessarily getting very good services um so certainly into the 1990s um 
it had already started and i think it kind of continued and perhaps accelerated as the labor government took over in 1997 much more focus came to be placed on the sort of wider notion of value rather than just lowest cost um and at this point there was a lot of focus on uh, involving the the voluntary sector or the third sector as it was very sort of modishly called at that point um in the delivery of public services i guess the 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 big difference um perhaps uh between the sort of the the, the historical model uh of charities being involved in welfare and this model was that it was mediated by the state so it wasn't that these charities were just delivering welfare services because it was filling gaps in the state or the state couldn't the state recognized its responsibility but it was choosing to employ uh charities to deliver those services on quite tightly defined lines uh under contract through the the commissioning and procurement process um interestingly just to, to flag back actually if you look at the start of the welfare state um in the late 40s there was nothing to stop this being the case back then really the original legislation for the establishment of the nhs didn't actually specify that it was the state that had to deliver those services all it did was confer a responsibility on on the government to ensure that an appropriate level of provision was in place it absolutely left it open that the way in which that responsibility could be um, discharged was through voluntary provision so if there were enough good voluntary hospitals out there or enough philanthropy to support it that would be fine the government wouldn't need to do anything actually again it was because figures like bevan and Attlee and others within the labor movement had very strong views about the desirability of state provision as opposed to philanthropic that little or no thought was given to to kind of making any effort in that direction um and that is what kind of uh shifted the the ideological mood on on that front um so I guess where we've got to today is that uh, you know a lot of charities do here in the UK and and elsewhere kind of deliver services on behalf of the state for for contractual reasons but we're also I think slowly starting to see as ever with these things kind of a turn in the other direction so I think on on from two very different angles there's a bit of a backlash against the idea of charities delivering services or there being an element of kind of voluntary provision so some of it comes from conservative strains of thought from the sort of the right of politics and and here the argument is that while charities you know should meet welfare needs and that's a very desirable thing it shouldn't be as an arm of the state so here, here the argument essentially is that it would be preferable if all of this wasn't done by contractual means through um, the commissioning and procurement process. What would be better is essentially if we had something more akin to the Victorian model of welfare provision where those charities were just doing it because that was a better way of delivering welfare and the state didn't really need to get involved. Um, and to some extent, this is the the kind of thinking that was embodied in David Cameron's big society agenda. And there is an element of it, I think, in the more recent UK government civil society strategy, which I hasten to add is not as simple as, you know, the state should pull back and philanthropy should, should pick up the pieces. But there's a definite sense in which it is it is seen as preferable that the provision of um, uh, of services to meet welfare needs is done through sort of philanthropic or collectivist means and it's not sort of mediated directly by the state 
But then the other way in which um, there is kind of criticism of the idea of philanthropy or charities um, delivering services on behalf of the state, I think, comes from left-wing thinking. Um, and this is, you know, goes back to that that kind of older view of people like Attlee and Bevan, which is that, you know, all welfare needs are should be met by the state. That's the only desirable state of affairs. And that the only real uh, appropriate role for charities, perhaps, within that is maybe to do things that entirely sit outside um, uh, any any kind of arguable domain of what the state should do. So things that you know, to do with leisure uh, interests or whatever. So you would you would sort of vastly reduce the scope of what philanthropy um, can fund. Or what they could do, at least in the short term, is to focus on campaigning in favour of the necessary reform to ensure that state provision is expanded and then they can probably just sort of wind up. Um, and this is certainly you know, an argument that we are seeing more and more. There's actually, just as I record this in over the weekend, there's been a, a big controversy linked to Remembrance Sunday where a, a writer um, sort of uh, vaguely associated with um, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party made sort of launched an attack on the British Red Cross, um, which was partly an argument about imperialism, but was also an argument about uh, the fact that charitable provision um, was no uh, was was in no way a sort of substitute for the state, and actually the only desirable thing that could happen was that uh, charities like the British Red Cross could sort of wither and die, uh, and then then the state could take over. And obviously, you know, I think it was a very simplistic version of the argument, which hopefully I think it's been clear through this podcast is much more complex. Um, but it shows that that is a uh, sort of a strain of thinking that has never gone away. Um, so, you know, I think this question of philanthropy versus state when it comes to meeting the welfare needs of citizens is one of the the key uh, sort of questions and challenges that continues to face philanthropy. And I think, as as we'll see, it kind of, it very much polarizes people on the sort of traditional left and right of politics, perhaps, in terms of what they think the answer should be to that question. I haven't got the answer here. I mean, I, I have my thoughts about what I think, which unfortunately <laughs> I think are that it's much more complex and nuanced. And what we need is that sort of nuanced uh, view uh, of the, rele- the relevant role of philanthropy sort of between the state and the market as meeting welfare needs and what the interrelationship of the two is. But that's quite difficult to fit on a placard, unfortunately. Um, but hopefully at least what you've got from this episode of the podcast is the, the sense, some of the sense of the history of this question. And also the fact that it's absolutely not a sort of zero-sum game between philanthropy and the state, where you know the more that the state gets involved in welfare provision, the less that philanthropy does. It's it's not as clear as that. And there's definitely not a binary distinction between you know state is good, philanthropy is bad, or vice versa. And that that anything you know anybody who argues along those lines, I think, is providing an unhelpful uh, oversimplification of the matter. But anyway, I shall dismount my high horse at this point because I'm in danger of going long on this. Um, but it just remains to say thanks for listening. Um, I will put uh, lots of links in the show notes to various relevant uh, things that you can read about this issue. Um, if you're interested more broadly in kind of issues to do with philanthropy and charity and sorts of things I've been talking about, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Um, if you have ideas for topics we could cover on the podcast or people we could interview in the future, Drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. 
Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Uh, like, uh, subscribe, and share the podcast with all your friends. And other than that, I will see you next time. Bye! Bye! <laughs>